Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But lately, I've been talking a lot about The Legion of Superheroes five years later, and I've outlined the reason for that quite a bit in previous episodes, so there's probably no reason for me to go into that here. It's enough to say that I can't even completely quantify why this is, but it is enough to say that I fucking adore Legion of Superheroes, especially the five years later era. There's something about this series of comics that just captures my imagination or scratches the fanboy itch. Whatever metaphor you want to use, for some reason, this is the iteration of the Legion that really gets it done for me. I don't have anything against this is volume four. I don't have anything against volume three. And I'll even go out on a limb and suggest that even the post-Zero Hour Legion has quite a few redeeming elements to them. One of which being, at least for me, Laurel Gant. And maybe I'll get more into that someday. But for me, well, there's just something about the way that Laurel Gand is written in the post-Zero Hour Legion. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's a real character flaw, you know? Not a bad habit. This is a true flaw in her character. And I think that's one of the big reasons that I like Laurel Gand as much as I do. So, anyway, but that's the post-Zero Hour Legion. And I have no interest whatsoever in talking about the post-Zero Hour Legion today. Not when there's 12 years... 12 years. <laughs> well, I'm just fucking up all over the place. Ah, whatever. I'm leaving that in. Uh, especially not when there's five years later uh, era Legion of Superhero comics that need to be talked about. And the five years later Legion of Superhero comic book that needs to be talked about today is Legion of Superheroes number five. Cover date is March of 1990. Cover, penciler, and writer is The Gif, Keith Giffen. Writers, or co-writers, co-plotters, I'm not completely sure what these credits are supposed to be, but I think co-plotters. Mary and Tom Bierbaum. Inker is Al Gordon. Editor is Mark Wade. Letterer is Todd Klein. Story synopsis is as follows. <clears throat> the natural order, having been restored, Mordrew uh, rules the universe from a position of absolute power. Can a handful of rebels restore the timeline of the Knights of the Thirty, or is Mordrew destined to rule forever? Well, following the death of the Time Trapper at Monel's hands in the last issue, which is to say Legion of Superheroes number four, the universe has changed drastically. Mordrew is now the dominant force on Earth, ruling with an iron fist. His wife, Glorith, is a powerful sorceress in her own right who wants to control the planet for herself. Rond Vidar is the leader of a small group of rebels who believe that an alternate timeline once existed, and they see that uh, they, they see it as their mission to bring that timeline back into existence. Learning of this, Glorith decides to betray Mordru and help the rebels. They figure that the only way for this to work is if they bring back the Time Trapper, and Glorith nominates herself to be the new Time Trapper to balance Mordru and his power. She does the proper spell, and Mordrew awakens with the universe fading to white. To be continued, or to be resumed, or to be begun. It's really all in how you look at it, but in any case, that's the end of this issue anyway. And guys, I gotta tell you, you know, I'm notwithstanding the fact that I do consider myself to be a fan of Lord of the Rings, I don't really go in much for sword and sorcery type stuff, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think a big part of it is, it's really to do with my opposition to the usage of magic and fiction, and there are some obvious issues with that, and there are some maybe less obvious issues with that, but for me, what it comes down to is magic, just by virtue of what it is, can achieve anything you know? And I don't know why, but for some reason, it doesn't bother me that in theory, Superman's powers are capable of doing anything too. For some reason, the fact that 
there's it's comic book science, but nevertheless, there is a scientific explanation for the nature of Superman's powers, how his powers work, what his limitations are, what his weaknesses are, etc. For some reason, I can buy into the idea of Superman's powers, right? But this idea of magic, I mean, it can be used to do literally anything. You know, anything that you need it to do, that you as the writer of whatever story need for magic to do, magic can do. And I freely admit that there could be some hypocrisy that's going on with this, but it's just for whatever reason, stories that are too dependent upon magic usually don't work for me. There are exceptions, fewer and fewer I find as time goes by, but anyway, there are exceptions. But for the most part, that's generally where I'm coming from. You know, all this magical whoozy what's this stuff just really isn't for me, you know? Having said all of that, I must tell you that this is basically Legion of Superheroes as dark fantasy. This is the Legion of Superheroes as sword and sorcery, and I fucking love this issue. I mean, I guess I'm it's kind of beating a beating a dead horse a little bit for me to say that I love this issue of 12 years. I keep saying 12 years. I don't know what the hell my problem is today that I love this issue of the Five Years Later Legion or that I love that issue of the Five Years Later Legion. But for, for whatever reason, number one, I keep saying that. And number two, it's especially true of this. This is the more true verse, issue number five, and I just fucking love this story. Uh, it, and honestly, it really begins, <clears throat> it really begins uh, literally right away on the cover. You know, first off, this is just a really dense, and a uh, uh, detail-oriented cover. There's a lot of weathering on things. There's a lot of fine detailing on things. You know, the the stuff that we're looking at on uh, on the cover of issue number five here, this is stuff that's really, really old. And in some cases could be centuries old. But it's basically a picture of an hourglass. It's sitting on what looks like a table or uh, some kind of stand that's made out, if anything, and actually this thing looks like it's made out of stone, which is also pretty old. It's surrounded by candles, and it's uh, in inside of a room that looks just very medieval looking. And I think that this sets the tone and the tenor of this story very well. You know, what it is that we're going to be seeing in this story, the world in which all of this stuff takes place. I think it sets the tone for that stuff really, really nicely. But there's something else. There's some symbolism involved in the cover that, frankly, I don't... I personally haven't seen people talk very much about. But like I say, the centerpiece of the cover, undeniably, is this big hourglass. And you can see that the, that the sand is proceeding uh, from the top glass to the bottom glass. And that's kind of the nature of hourglasses. The thing that kind of works for me about this, though, is the symbolism of this hourglass. The top glass is, one might say, the old timeline that was centered upon technology and upon science and all of that fun stuff. Basically, one might say the, the, the fundamentals of the natural world. Whereas the, the glass below, the one on bottom, this is basically a little glimpse of the Mordruverse, and again, you're seeing these sort of medieval-looking uh, buildings, very low-tech world. Uh, not, there's no visible technology to see as compared to the top glass, which is filled to overflowing with technology. Technology is completely absent from the bottom, and you know, the, it's like the visual message here is that time is running out for the world of technology, of science, of reason, etc. And <clears throat> it's a uh, it's giving way to a world of fantasy, a world of magic, and it's just ridiculously well done. I would say this is maybe the best of the, uh, the, the covers that the GIF has done for the Legion of Superheroes so far in this series. This is, I don't know, I mean, I really like the cover of number four, which is just very straightforward, very simple, very meat and potatoes. Uh, sort of portrait of Monel cracking his knuckles and about to kick some serious ass. This cover has ideas behind it. There's meaning, intent, and symbolism to it. And so for those reasons, I think I actually prefer 
the the cover of issue number five to everything else that we've seen so far but very honestly really none of the covers that we've seen so far have been bad so take that for whatever you think it's worth now getting into page one this again sets down the agenda of what exactly this story is going to be number one but number two also gives you an idea of the type of world in which all of this is taking place and by that I mean what we're seeing here this is a it's basically a, a proclama uh, proclamation that is it's basically announcing a, 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 a worldwide holiday for the entire planet Earth and by implication it suggests that this is a very totalitarian very brutal and very suppressive type of uh, society that Mordru has created. So you get some exposition to that. But there's also, again, we're setting the tone here a little bit. This is, it looks like it, it's written on paper, right? And the reason that this is significant is because we've seen text pieces all through these Legion of Superheroes comics that we've read up to this point. But what we're supposed to infer is that these text pages they're basically news reports that somebody is reading on for lack of a better way of saying it it's basically on an ipad you know yeah it was 30 years ago and ipads didn't exist but the i guess abstract idea of something like an ipad or a general tablet or something people were able to conceive of such a thing even back in the 80s and so we've seen that sort of thing all through the series up to this point. Issues number uh, numbers one, two, three, and four. That kind of stuff has been littered across all four of the issue, all four issues of uh, of the series up to this point. And we don't see any of that here. No, there are no iPads, no nothing. Right? This is like I say, it's a piece of paper rather than an iPad, and that kind of speaks to the fact that this is a world essentially devoid of technology as we've seen it in the legion of superheroes comics up to this point that technology uh, uh those inventions those scientific discoveries don't exist because mordrew has basically uh tamped them down he has suppressed them and so what people have when i say it's it's basically medieval technology that's not an exaggeration, guys. That's pretty much the level of technology that we see all through this story. And so here, again, this is the GIF being, in my estimation at least, uh, just a masterful storyteller in all of this. Yes, he's imparting some very useful uh, information here vis-a-vis -vis describing the type of society that Mordru has created. He's giving us the date on which this story takes place. He's telling us a little bit about the history of how things have happened, the liberation of planet Earth, quote unquote. And he's also visually expressing the level of technology that the characters in this story have access to. So page one is actually accomplishing quite a lot of different things. And again, I mean, I know I've kissed uh, the gifts ass quite a lot through all these different episodes, and I'm kissing it some more here. This is just in my opinion, masterful storytelling that's going on. And once again, we see that the GIF really had his thinking cap on when he was uh, putting this issue together. And I just eat it up with a spoon. Love it. So that's page one. Getting into page two, we get, at first, some kind of context-free internal narration that's been going on here. And on page two, what we basically see is a character who's ultimately revealed to be Andrew Nolan, otherwise known as uh, Pharaoh Lad. Uh, from the main timeline, he was Pharaoh Lad. Here, he's just Andrew Nolan. He's wandering around, and he's basically despairing at the sheer reality of Mordru's totalitarian reign over the planet Earth. You know, it's... he's really angsting about this and here again it's basically the gif or the beer bombs or whoever they're basically reaching into 
Legion history and pulling Pharaoh Lad out of out of mothballs so that he can kind of be the centerpiece, the star of this story. Or if not the star, he's at the very least a a major character in this story. And it could have been anybody. I mean, I think a lot of people's natural temptation if if they were tasked with writing a story like this set in an alternate timeline where Mordru took over, their center their centerpiece character, their lead character might have been Rock or it might have been Garth or maybe uh, you know, if, if you're thinking outside the box a little bit, maybe it might have been Tenzel or something like that. But I think it takes a little bit of a Legion fan to take this basic concept and say, nope, nope, nope. I want to use Pharaoh Lad to tell this story. And I just dig that approach. I think that was the right decision to make for this story. Now, it's not immediately made explicit on page two that this is Andrew Nolan. That actually comes up a few pages from now, but pretty much right from the start, he's wearing a mask, kinda, sorta, similar to his uh, Pharaoh Lad mask. And so the visual illusion here is pretty clear all by itself. I think most Legion, uh, Legion fans would have figured out, oh, this is Pharaoh Lad. But if you didn't realize that, well, that comes along later on. So anyway, but here again, what we're seeing is this is actually, if anything, this looks sort of like gothic architecture that we're seeing a lot of on page two. What with the stained glass windows and all that fun stuff, uh, the, uh, the, the candles and just the kind of curves and shapes of doorways and arches and things like that. This just seems kind of gothic to me. And it actually kind of reminds me of, I'm not going to get too sectarian here, guys, so just bear with me for a minute, but it actually sort of reminds me of a, uh, a Catholic parish that's uh, located here in my town. It's actually kind of a special parish uh, because it's, um, I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but it, it, it's basically a Catholic, this is a Roman Catholic parish that uses uh, the Anglican liturgy, and there are reasons why it uses Anglican liturgy, you know, and I don't want to get lost in that, but the point is th this parish it uses um, very, I don't know, kind of medieval, like English Gothic type of architecture, just to kind of set, I guess, a visual tone of what exactly this place is. And it's that same kind of architecture. It's run down, beaten up, chewed up. It's been through the ringer, as we see it here in this story. But it's, it looks kind of similar here. As, as to, you know, the, you know, this uh, Catholic church I'm talking about looks kind of similar to some, to a lot of the architecture that we see throughout this story. And so there's kind of a personal connection for me there. I just love it. Like I say, this is just uh, ridiculously well done. And at the bottom of page two, Nolan actually has a kind of insightful bit of dialogue here. He says, who am I kidding? Anyone who fights Mordru because they think they can win is a fool. You fight Mordru because you have to. And that is very much the, the attitude that's prevalent in this story. You know, that, that guys, there's, no, there's not going to be a successful rebellion, not really, against Mordru. Or I guess if there is, it's not going to involve force of arms. And I like that. You know, but another kind of interesting touch, and this is something I haven't completely wrapped my head around is that Nolan makes his way again, not to get sectarian here, but this is actually part of the story. He makes his way into a, a Catholic church and that's where he meets Missa. And there's some story stuff that we'll get into in just a sec, but it's, it's made clear right here on page three that both Nolan and Missa both are Catholic. Now guys, in the original timeline, Missa was the White Witch, and she was, well, pretty good at that sort of stuff. What we see here in a world that's dominated by Mordru is that Missa appears to be a pretty devout Catholic. And that's kind of an interesting direction to take her story. And on top of all of that, it's made clear that not only is she Catholic, but Andrew Nolan is Catholic too, which... 
I guess these are things that I just never bothered to think about. But especially for Missa, this kind, this is sort of interesting in that number one that she's Catholic, like I say, but number two that Mordru allows a Catholic church to even exist. I mean, I don't necessarily think that Mordru demands that he be worshipped, but I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table here, guys. Historically, there have been times in history where Christianity has been a pretty subversive power, you know? And Christianity, has, whether anyone likes it or not, it has defeated and toppled empires. It's overcome a lot of different things. And you would think that, of all people, Mordru would probably know that. And he might not approve of the fact that a Catholic church is, that basically it, it exists in his world. You would think that he would go to pains to stamp that out. And yet it seems that he hasn't. So I don't know, I don't know what to think of that. That's just, that's kind of interesting. But to get into the meat and potatoes of the story here, basically, uh, no one is basically in this church to, to meet uh, Missa. They're basically here to to trade roles, or not trade roles, they're here to trade information with each other. Nolan's basically traded places with an agent by the name of Foxmore, and Nolan announces that the that basically Mordrew and or his forces have captured Foxmore. So Nolan's been sent in Foxmore's place, which Nyssa wasn't originally planning on. And so, basically, they trade information with one another, and we're going to find out what exactly Nyssa, I keep saying Nyssa, that what Missa has told Nolan. We're going to find out more about that in just a couple of pages, but guys, they're basically here to trade information on how best to bring Mordru down. And like I said a little while ago, bringing Mordru down isn't going to be achieved through force of arms, or at least not conventional force of arms. You're going to need something else in order to defeat him. And not what Missa tells Nolan, this is not specifically uh, the magic bullet, so to speak, to, to do the job. This is basically one of the last pieces of the puzzle that the rebels are going to need to defeat Mordru. So this is bigger than you might think, but... Moving on to uh, uh, page four, which is itself a transition into page five, but moving on to page four, we basically get a kind of sword and sorcery, dark fantasy uh, viewpoint on what the original timeline was, what it was about, how it came into being, and what ultimately caused its undoing. And it's kind of pre presented in a sort of lyrical storybook type of fashion and the art looks almost like a stained glass window. Almost, but not quite. And this is... Well, I'm just going to read some of this. It says, In a time that never, that never was, of freedoms that didn't die, where castles of gleaming uh, steel still rose to touch the sky, a demon attacked in Earth's darkest hour, his mission most monstrous, our sun to devour. The Knights of the Thirty, under the sign of the Jewel, united they stood against death, uh, against death clouds so cruel. One knight, whose face was kept hidden from all, with courage of iron did enter death's maw. To destroy the demon, they forged a device that would deliver a great fire at the cost of a life. The sacrifice was his, the knight with no face. The fire's awful glow filled the great silent place. His fiery remains in the heavens did stay, above the sweet world who survived that dark day. Now, if this sounds sort of like uh, a sword and sorcery, dark fantasy type of retelling of how, oddly enough, Pharaoh Lad, of all people, met his demise, that's because it is, in fact, a sword and sorcery, dark fantasy viewpoint of the story of how Pharaoh Lad met his demise. And it's kind of funny that this is being relayed to this Mordruverse version of, of uh, Andrew Nolan. So anyway, like I say, page, page four is just kind of riddled with that stuff. There's a lot of, there are a, a lot of technical terms that are getting tossed around here. Knights of the 30, meaning the 30th century. This is about the Legion of Superheroes. 
the sun eater, one night whose face was kept hidden from all with courage of iron, did enter death's maw. Obviously, that's Pharaoh, lad. So on and so on and so on. And basically, Nolan repeats all of that stuff word for word for Rond Vidar. And basically, what, what Rond kind of figures out is that this is very important. This isn't a fever dream that somebody had. In a certain sense, this is real. This is something that really did happen in a way or was meant to happen or could have happened or however however you want to you want to look at it the issue here is that ron vidar's objective is to figure out a way to defeat mordru and you get little stories like this that come from mordru directly and what the rebels are starting to think is that you know what this isn't this is no fantasy. This is no careless product of wild imagination. This is real shit that Mordru is dishing out. This is stuff that did happen or could have happened or is plausible. But for some reason, something happened that prevented this, this other reality, this other timeline, this other continuity, whatever you want to call it. Something happened that prevented this from, from becoming true reality. And... Of all people, I think it kind of makes sense for Rond Vidar to be the one putting the pieces together about the original timeline and at least some of the things that went wrong. And so after that, we 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 cut away to Glorith, and this is on page six, getting into, like I say, pages six and seven. There is business that's going on with with Glorith. She's basically asked, uh, she's acting a little bit kind of like a sex kitten here. And you get the idea that her life is one of, well, pleasure and really not much else. I mean, she's an accomplished sorceress in her own right. And so it makes sense that on some level or another, she'd feel right at home in the Mordru verse. And yet, maybe she's not. Maybe she wants something more. But one of the kind of neat little bits of business that's going on here is uh, it, it's on page seven. This is a snow globe, presumably, that was gifted to Glorith by Mordru. And it's basically meant to be a snow globe, right? Only this and nothing more. But on uh, uh, page seven, panel six, we get a little bit of a close-up of the snow globe. And it looks like it's the... Uh, Legion Clubhouse from the original timeline. You know, Mordru is so drunk on his own power and his own sense of invincibility that he's actually dropping breadcrumbs to anybody who's willing to put the pieces together. What it is that should have happened, but didn't. And you see little bits of business like that. Like I say, it, it's in the story that Missa told, or rather that Mordru told Missa, and Missa in turn told Nolan, which Nolan then repeated to Rond Vidar. And we're seeing it again here on page seven, where Mordru is so convinced of his own uh, supremacy at this point, that he's actually getting so careless that he's dropping breadcrumbs of what exactly the world missed out on. And it's not exactly a spoiler to say that's going to all of those things have planted the seeds of his eventual defeat. And so we actually see all of this getting hammered out. This is on page eight. Rond Vidar is basically drawing lines in the snow using a stick because probably a chalkboard is way uh, high tech in the Mordru verse. So he's drawing lines in the snow. One line represents the original timeline. One line represents the other Mordru verse timeline. And he's basically kind of figured it out, mostly, what it is that, that's happened. He thinks to himself, I must be a lunatic. I've got to be crazy, but so help me, I do believe it. One timeline. History the way we know it. Mordru rules all. Then, a second timeline. History reshaped by the Puppet Master. Which is to say, the Time Trapper. But they don't know that this is the Time Trapper, so... Hmm. Anyway, Nolan goes on. An improbable balance is struck. Neither Mordru nor the Puppet Master ever achieves total power. Then something happens. The Puppet Master and his handiwork are destroyed. 
Mordru once again reigns supreme, but, or rather, and maybe now he's the only one powerful enough to remember the other timeline, to know it existed, but if the Puppet Master's manipulations could be restored... Oh, listen to me. How can I believe in this fantasy? Because if I don't, I've got nothing. And this is, number one, just kind of interesting character development for Rond. But number two, it basically lays out that people in the Mordruverse are starting to put it together. They realize what, what it was that happened. And they're starting to formulate plans. What can we do to maybe set things right? Or at least change the odds. And so that's page eight. Page nine, the plans are starting to, to get underway. The, the, the gears are falling into place. Nolan meets with uh, Missa again, and they're putting together some kind of a plan. And the thing about it that sort of works for me is that what we see on page nine is that not necessarily all technology is verboten. There are some technologies that maybe aren't as good as they could be, but still some technologies that we do see exist that at least some of Mordru's inner circle is allowed to use. It could be that these are just holdouts from before Mordru moved in and took over everything. And these people just have access to technology that from their standpoint could be several decades or maybe, maybe even centuries old. And... It, they've gotten it to work at least well enough that they're still able to get some kind of use out of it. But it's not completely perfect for purposes of surveillance. There are certain things that they can't see because certain things are for Glorith's eyes only, as becomes revealed at, in the very last panel on page 9. And I kind of like that idea that these people may be loyal to Mordru out of some sense of sincere devotion or a fake devotion, or fear, or a lack of any other place to go, or for any other of a multitude of reasons. But at the end of the day, they can't really use magic the way that Mordru can, so they have to still rely on technology to get things done. Now we're talking about old, beat-up, decrepit, and kind of chewed-up, and borderline obsolete, or not obsolete, but borderline uh, malfunctioning technology, but technology nevertheless. And... I kind of like that. You know, I kind of like the idea that, number one, his minions are enterprising enough that they're able to cobble together enough technology to put together at least some kind of surveillance on some people some of the time, at least in some circumstances. And it just says a lot about their ingenuity. Maybe the the fear under which they live when it comes to Mordru of missing sight of anything anything that the rebels might be up to. And I don't, it's just, it, it, it goes well to character for everybody involved. And I just, I just dig it. But speaking of technology, you know, these, these sort of low level functionaries on page nine are not the only people who serve Mordru with access to technology. Glorith uses technology too, as we see on page 10. And, She's well basically she just thinks that she thinks that she's just won the lottery here because she sees now an opportunity uh to use Ron Vidar for her own purposes. Those purposes will become revealed soon enough. But she number one, she has technology, and number two, it becomes pretty apparent right here on page ten that she's got a little bit of her own agenda, you know? She's got a little bit of her own stuff that she's working with here. And the fact is, I mean, Glorith hadn't been... First off, she was never a major character in, in Legion lore, right? She was sort of a here-today, gone-later-today, flash-in-the-pan, like, second- or third-tier villainess who was basically there in whatever story to make somebody else look good and to make them look powerful. And so she's brought back here in, I think, a really clever way because if you're going to establish the fact that Mordru was 
going to move in and take over, except for the Time Trapper's uh, machinations. And then you have the Time Trapper's machinations uh, removed so that Mordru has a clear field to move in and take over. And then you know that Mordru is going to have to be defeated in some way or another. There are not very many magic-based characters in, in Legion lore that are really capable of doing that. And so it stands to reason that you'd want somebody like Glorith around who can be the bridge between, I guess, the Trapperverse and the Mordruverse. And she can sort of straddle both sides of it, in a sense, and fulfill some of the functions, at least, of the Time Trapper. But anyway, it's just overall, it's just really well done. And I like the idea that ultimately, when you come right down to it, Glorith's only true loyalty is to power. And right now, her access to power is dependent upon being Mordru's wife. But having access to power is going to eventually require her to do something else. And it just speaks straight to character, which I think is an important thing to do in this story, considering how sketchy Glorith as a character had always been up to this point, considering how long ago she'd been killed off. This is a good thing to be doing for her character, you know? We can generally surmise that we know who Ron Vidar is. We know pretty well, I would say, who Andrew Nolan is. We've definitely gotten a, gotten a pretty good understanding of Mordru at this point. So it makes sense to, to position uh, Glorith in such a prominent role in this story. Not necessarily as a villain, at least not yet, but certainly as a kind of anti-protagonist. I'm not really sure how else to categorize her. So anyway, all of this is to say that going into page 11, these things are not happening in a vacuum. Um, these low-level functionaries of, 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 of Mordru's, they're not, they're not completely hopeless, right? Mano understands that the rebels are up to something. And he also is beginning to understand that, or at least he's beginning to suspect, that Glorith might have an agenda of her own, that maybe she wants to use the rebels for her own purposes. But either way, there's no way anybody can allow Mordru to wake up tomorrow morning and not have explanations and ideally solutions for all this bullshit that's going on. So right then and there, it's set up that Mordru is going to wake up in the morning, and by that time, the rebels understand they need to have all of this stuff uh, finished. Whatever it is that they're going to do, it has to begin and end successfully tonight. And so that begins happening on page 12. Ron Vidar basically reaches out and makes contact with Mordru's mind, He's able to do this because of the fact that Mordru's asleep. And so I assume that means that his subconscious is wide open. Now, Vidar understands that the instant Mordru wakes up, number one, he's going to know what happened. And number two, he's going to know who did it. Which means, number three, Ron Vidar is not long for this world if he can't begin and then complete, successfully complete, his mission tonight. So big doings are going on here. The, the uh, security forces of the Mordruverse, they now understand that the rebels are up to something. They need to have the rebels uh, hash settled uh, by morning before Mordru wakes up or else heads are going to roll everywhere. The rebels now, for their own part, understand that they're going to have to defeat Mordru before he wakes up in the morning or again. Heads are going to roll everywhere. And so now we've got a timer on this story. And in, uh, on uh, page 13, we, we basically see a little, we, we see basically what is the turning point, right? We see the linchpin moment where the Durlin Knight, as it were, is, he, he basically has to be uh, put into the past in order for, well, certain things to happen. Basically, or not in the past, I'm sorry, into the future. The Durlin Knight, which is to say R.J. Brand, has to be in the future in order for the, the cursed moment, the critical exchange 
that needs to happen that leads to the found uh, the founding of the legion of superheroes rj brand has to be in the future in order for that to happen meaning in the 30th century he has to be taken from the 20th century and put into the 30th century that was the big change or one of the big changes that the time trapper made and so when the time trappers machinations were taken out of the equation one of the things that didn't happen is rj brand getting taken to the future so that he can basically begin the process of well founding the legion of superheroes and so that's really the the crucial moment there and so uh uh, Rond figures all that out and says, that's, that's the moment. That's the moment that changed, and that's the moment that needs to be put back so that things can uh, proceed more or less the way that they did in the original timeline. So now Rond has a deadline, and he has an agenda, and he's got kind, kind of an idea of what needs to happen, but he doesn't have... Uh, a really effective way of carrying it out. So, anyway. Meanwhile, on page 14, this isn't a big deal, but Nolan is basically very well aware of the fact that if this thing goes sideways, not only is Rond going to die, he's probably uh, going to take Nolan, Nolan down with him. So, anyway. Another kind of neat touch, though. This is on page 14. Uh, panel number five, we see a, a, a mosaic, and rather than this being like a uh, like a flashing electronic sign, or rather than being a fancy schmancy uh, uh, printed flyer, what we see is a uh, like I say, it's a, a mosaic. It's a giant eyeball saying "Mordru watches over you," and as with so many things, there's a little bit of a double entendre that's going on here where it's. You could interpret this as saying that Mordru is protecting uh, the people of Earth. But the other way of looking at it is that this is a threat. If you rebel against Mordru, he's going to find out about it. And implicitly, you understand that's going to be all she wrote for you. So, anyway. Uh, moving right along, skipping ahead a bit, getting into page 16... Uh, Rond is uh, brought to Glorith, and they begin hatching their plans of what exactly they can do to restore the original timeline, or, lacking that, put in place a reasonable facsimile of that original timeline. And so, that's pretty much that. One of the things, though, that I kind of like about this, uh, about this page, though, is that Glorith talks to Rond as though it's actually kind of patronizing when you think about it she talks to him as though he's an equal even though he's clearly her prisoner he's clearly in a lot of uh, pain hell he's not even allowed to wear any clothes he's uh, basically recovering here whereas glorith is sitting on her little throne she's the one that that's got all the power ron's life is in her hands and if she decides that he needs to die then that means he's gonna die and yet she's treating him as though, or at least she's talking to him as though he's an equal, even though both of them know he's not. She's holding all the cards in this scene, and it's just, like I say, it's just, it's, uh, it's really well done. So, anyways. Now, moving right along, we, we, we start getting into what you might call rising action that's going on here, uh, page 18. Uh, Mano uh, basically intercepts uh, Missa at the Catholic Church. And so this is, uh, well, no one only really calls it Holy Cross on page 18. So, so, hmm. Excuse me, I want to get a uh, sip off of my Coke here. I've been sitting here talking virtually nonstop for over 45 minutes, and I'm getting a little bit thirsty. You know, I think I'm also going to get a couple drags off of uh, my e-cig here. Anyway, so like I say, page 18, this is some rising action that's going on here. 
no one spot uh no no one spots a uh, skiff heading towards uh the Holy Cross church. He realizes that the most likely thing that's going on here is that Mordrew's uh secret police they're gunning uh for Missa now and she's probably at the cathedral. So he wants to abandon her and leave her to her fate, but he just can't bring himself to do it. So on page 18 he hauls off to save her, page 19 Glorth begins the ritual, and like a lot of rituals, don't mistake me for a uh, some kind of an expert on magic and rituals and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I'm Catholic, so I don't really go in for that stuff, like, really at all. But she begins the ritual, which of course involves blood, because it's fiction, and apparently all, ri all magical rituals involve blood in some way. So that is beginning, and there's going to be a little bit of a twist to that, so... Just remember that she's she's uh, got a, a dagger in her hand and she's opened up uh, a, a wound on her body. It's all part of the ritual. So moving right along, she as she's working her way through this ritual, we we see blood in the snow, but intercut with all of that, we also see, basically, it's it's Mano catching up with uh, Missa, uh, and then, in short order, getting rescued by Nolan, and after that, uh, the fight's on. It looks like Nolan is losing the fight on, on page, on page 22. So, one of the things, though, that's kind of interesting, actually, a couple of things that are interesting. Number one, Ron Vidar is the one that gave Glorith the information about, about this ritual, what it is, how it works, and ultimately what it's going to achieve. And so Glorith has started this ritual, and Ron's internal uh, monologue here, it's actually kind of cruel, but he says, for better or worse, she's performed the ritual by now. She'll expect the power to come to her immediately until she realizes her life is slowly flowing away and that it's part of the spell. She expected the power to spare her the agony, but the only way to get the power is to endure the final, ultimate agony. The spell is fatal. And that's obviously information that Rond kept to himself when he was explaining the the uh, spell to uh, Glorith. She even says, you know, Vidar, you bastard, you know, you didn't tell her that. Um, but the thing that comes out of this is that basically Glorith collapses into the snow, dead, and we get not quite the same exact panel involving R.J. Brand that we got before. it On uh, page 22, what it says is, I'd like to consult with your wife on the Lobo problem. And, of course, the response that R.J. gets is, why are you asking me? And so that leads to the, the, the magic moment, the, the turning point, the, the shatter point, uh, if you want, of the... Uh, original timeline, it's not exactly the same as what happened before. And I'm going to see if I can dig that back back out of here. Working through my digital comic book here. All right, so it looks like, it actually looks like I misremembered this. I, I realized that the dialogue was a bit different, but not quite, not, not as much as I thought. It's basically just incomplete. But right here on page 13, we see uh, RJ in his uh, Durlin form. He says, consult with your wife. And it's not the, the uh, complete, or at least I'm, maybe it is actually, you know, because all he says is consult with your wife. So maybe he's uh, telling somebody to consult with his, I don't know. It's all in how you look at it, I guess. But what I think we're supposed to infer, actually, now that I'm reading page 13 a little bit closer, this is 
page 13, panel five. It looks like this is only a snippet of what Brand actually said, whereas uh, this is on, uh, on page 22 on the final panel. Uh, Brand in his Darlin form says, I'd like to consult with your wife on the logo, uh, Lobo problem, on the Lobo problem. And that's what begins the process of undoing Mordru's power because this is really the, the beginning point for the Legion of Superheroes. So, at that moment, Mordru wakes up, instantly realizes everything that's happened. He has just enough time to shout, No! And instead of hollering just no all by itself, it just sort of echoes out, No! 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 Right as everything in the world turns to white. And this is just such a good fucking issue. God, I just love this. You know, again don't really go in a whole lot for these for these sword and sorcery stories this is just as a general rule this just really isn't my thing as much but I just love the atmosphere of this story I love the ambition of it I love the callbacks to somewhat less obscure and somewhat more obscure bits of uh, legion lore and it's just a very creative, very inventive, very entertaining and engaging story. And in spite of the fact that this is technically a sword and sorcery story, I still consider this to be a great Legion story overall. So uh, satisfaction is guaranteed. And honestly, guys, to the best of my knowledge, the Mordruverse has never really been revisited. So this is kind of unique in, in, in Legion lore anyway, just because of the fact that it's just so different from everything else that's come before. So anyway, like I say, I really dig this issue. It, it, it's, uh, it's a ton of fun and it's highly recommended. Now, I don't want to get too much into the blood and guts of uh, it's okay, I'm a senator.livejournal.com. Uh, but as I've said with some of these other issues, uh, Pe- uh, uh, Tom Beerbaum is, uh, he's basically posted a bunch of different recollections and musings about the the uh, five years later Legion of Superheroes in generally chronological order and I do want to read at least a little bit of that uh, Tom uh, Beerbaum uh, writes what was most fun about this story was the chance to figure out who would be our heroes in the alternate universe Mary had always had a thing for Ron Vidar and it made great sense for the Ron of this timeline to exhibit the necessary expertise in the manipulation of timelines. I also loved uh, Pharaoh Lad, and the chance to bring him back was irresistible. What a perfect addition uh, to our resistance team since Keith has already pleased her, or sorry, placed her in Mordru's harem in the Legion's 20, uh, 2995 timeline. Uh, so. Why not put, uh, put her in his harem in this timeline as well? Uh, uh, Beerbomb goes on to say, The toughest task was figuring out who the new time trapper should be. As we tried to, as we tried to do throughout all this timeline manipulation, we did our best to give the changes some logic and internal consistency. So I literally asked myself, what long-lost Legion character would still be around would uh, to be an interesting villain if the Time Trapper never existed. After a few minutes of speculation over lunch at Coco's restaurant in Long Beach, we came up with Glorith, the hapless sexpot sidekick who the Time Trapper heartlessly destroyed in the second Super Baby story. Always regretted her demise and took some satisfaction writing a uh, soup. What is this word? Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I, I was not actually scrolling down to where I needed to. After a few minutes of speculation, blah, 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 we came up with Glorith, the, hap- Glorith, the hapless sex pot sidekick who the trapper heartlessly destroyed in uh, the second Super Baby story. 
I always regretted her demise and took some satisfaction in writing a story where she turned the tables on the time trapper. The supervillainess we uh, turned her into certainly was never as close, meaningful, or sorry, men uh, menacing, and formidable as the time trapper himself, but I always enjoyed her Julie Newmar-esque approach to galactic domination. And I really like the ideas that uh, if Glorus lived in a in a universe that had no time trapper, she'd have managed to snuggle up next to some other immensely powerful force. In this case, our Glorith is a good deal more savvy than the original and immensely powerful. In this case, our Glorith is does actually manage to successfully vault herself into a position of great power. We also got to throw in other names uh, to hint at the fates of other Legion uh, regulars in this timeline. We hear of the apparent deaths of the heroes of Lawlor and the Wynothian clan that hurls lightning. And, I mean, it's pretty evident that this is kind of a not very specific reference, but a reference nevertheless to at least two of the uh, Rand's uh, children. So we're not really sure if it's all three or if it's just the two or what, but there you go. It's uh, just really well done. I mean, I just, I like that re uh, that reference, you know. It's made in passing. We never see any of the uh, of the Rand's, but I just, I just enjoy that moment, you know. And uh, anyway, so... Uh, that's me, though. I'm not reading what Tom wrote. I'm, this is just me, Magnus, telling you what I thought. Now, uh, Tom goes on to write, Keith really told the story well, with all kinds of nice touches. One is that Mordrew is never seen through the whole story until you get a glimpse of him at the very end, just as his universe unravels and his enormous power dissipates. The idea is that in this universe, Mordrew is virtually a force of nature that his presence hangs over everyone and everything at all times. Nobody sees him, but everybody is aware of the threat he presents at all times. And I just just kind of dig that, you know, really well done. So anyway, I'm looking at the timer here and I'm already a little bit over in terms of what I wanted this episode to be. So I think I'm going to go ahead and just uh, put a pin in this thing as it turns out. I mean, I'm actually a lot more exhausted than I originally thought. It feels like I'm about to pass out right here at my desk. So. I think what I'm going to do is just go ahead and call it a day on this episode. And, uh, but just again, reiterate that I love this issue. This is a great Legion issue. And even though it's the only Legion story that I at least know about that takes place in the Mordru verse, it is a little bit dependent upon a knowledge of Legion history. So as with so many other, uh, 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 issues in this series. It's not, this isn't exactly new reader friendly, put it that way, but uh, it's definitely a real treat for hardcore Legion fans, and so for those reasons, I do highly recommend it. But that, I think, is pretty much it for me this time, so bye everybody. I'll see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. 
Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Italy.